It is one of the most amazing Sundays in the entire calendar. Actually, the most amazing Sunday that there is. I, I think about Resurrection Sunday, though, but I, and I can't help think about the days leading up to it because the disciples didn't think it was such an amazing day. You know, we talk about Good Friday when we celebrate the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We forget that when they experienced it, there was no hope of resurrection in their minds. I mean, it was death. It was tragedy. I mean, I, I can't but help think about that. But as before I get into that, we want to dismiss our children's worship time. Uh, between our children pre-K to third grade, if you can get up, they go right back. David will be right there in the back for you as we have our children's worship time. And as the kids are doing so, I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, because we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus but we're also having to remember that he did die. And that to the disciples, it was a, a terrible, awful thing. And we, we think about what that meant, his death. You know, it's amazing when we think about, uh, we always have the headlines every year. And at Christmas, around, right, right around New Year's, we have the reflection of who died the previous year. Right? Who we lost. You, get, you know what I'm talking about? And just the other night, I was watching this special on Netflix on uh, cemeteries. Yeah, I, I know it's a little weird. But uh, it was really interesting. They were talking about cemeteries in America. And they were walking through some of the most famous cemeteries in the United States. Um, some of them had Revolutionary War heroes in them. It's fascinating. Or, or Civil War heroes. They had politicians. They had famous people. They had presidents. They had a billionaire, and what was amazing to me about each one of them, that if you were to dig under the ground, you would find their body. Jesus is the only person in history that he was buried, but he rose again. There's no tombstone. There's nothing that you can point to. And we do forget, though, that when he died, it was terrible to the disciples, and, and they experienced death in all of its fullness. I mean, have you ever had it? And I know each one of us in this room has. When we get that phone call and hear about someone that we know that died, it was tragic. The pain hits over you like a, just rushes over you like a tsunami. And, and you're just numb on the inside. And then you start to cry. You, you can't even help it. The tears just start to flow from your face. They go down and you, you, you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You just ache and you feel numb. And the pain is overwhelming. See, that's how I think the disciples felt. They felt like that some 2,000 years ago when they had the news that Jesus had died. You have to remember that they'd walked with him for three years. He was their, their best friend, their confidant, their counselor. He was the, the miracle man. He was the Messiah who was to come. He was the one who brought hope for everyone. He, he, he was everything to them, and, and in him was all of their aspirations, all of their hopes, all of their dreams. And when he died, it all died with him. I mean, we know what it's like. We, 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 we know what that's like. I mean, for some of us, we can't quite fathom it. And the only analogy that I can come up with is sports. You know, I'm, I'm a basketball guy, or I'm a football guy, too. I like basketball. I like the Chicago Bulls. And there was this, this highlight that came up when Derrick Rose hit his knee and everybody in the whole place just went, oh, the season's over. See, for the disciples, it was infinitely more greater. It was, it's over. Everything's over. Everything we hoped, everything that we dreamed died with him. And how could he die? 
I mean, they had been with the crowds, and they'd seen him that Palm Sunday that week before, and everybody was coming out with palm branches, which were like little, little flags with Fourth of July, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next week, people are, I mean, at the end of the week, people are saying, give us Barabbas and crucify him. And they were dealing with this terror in themselves to see him dead. How could he die? They'd seen all the miracles. They had seen and walked with him. They had seen him bless the loaves and the fish. They had seen it multiply. They had seen a lame man walk. They had seen a man born blind receive sight. They had seen even dead people rise again after Jesus touched them. They'd been at the grave of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus had been dead four days. And I I like how they describe it in the scripture. That when Jesus shows up, he intentionally waited to show that he was the Son of God. Because in Jewish understanding and mythology, they believe that a person's spirit hovered around them for three days. And then after four days, he was officially gone and dead. So Jesus shows up at the grave of Lazarus. And he he tells them, roll the stone away. And his sisters have this look of shock. Are you kidding me? And I like how the King James Version describes it. They say this, Lord, no. No, we don't need, we can't roll the stone away. And he says, why? He said, behold, Lord, he's been in there four days and he stinketh. <laughs> I mean, they weren't dummies. You know, they understood that a dead body smells. And yet Jesus said, didn't I not say that if you believed, you would see the resurrection? She goes, I know that I'll see the resurrection at the end of time. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says to Lazarus, come forth. And then out of death comes life. And we understand that death is going to come to each one of us, but it's through our hope in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we have new life. And for the disciples, that I can't imagine what they were going through after Jesus had died, how they're processing Friday night, Saturday. They're all huddled together, and all of the thoughts of the week are running through their mind, even the events of the last three years. And I can imagine the 11 remaining disciples are huddled together in the upper room, and they're not even talking. You, you ever had it where there's just so much grief that no one even needs to say a word? It just weighs on your soul, and everyone knows it. No one coming alongside you going, it's going to be okay. He was just feeling it. They were all feeling it. And I imagine Peter felt it the worst. Because Peter was the one that Jesus had said before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, no, it's not going to happen. Even if, even if everybody else deserts you, I'm never going to deny you. I'll die with you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And he does. He does. And I can imagine just the next on Sunday morning, they're still de- dealing with all the emotions. We know that the women went to the tomb, they had, and they were trying to find someone to roll the stone away, but the stone had already been rolled away, and they run in, and he wasn't there. So they, they run back to the upper room where the disciples were, and, and it's, it's morning light. The way that the John describes it, it was like it was just daybreak. Light's just creeping in. And as they're thinking it through, trying to figure, face another unwelcome morning, she comes in breathless. 
with anticipation and excitement and a smile that can't be taken off of her face. She said, he's not there, he's risen. And Peter and John are so freaked out that they make like Usain Bolt and run all the way to the tomb. Peter's running, John's younger, John beats him there, goes in, and it says in the text that John saw and believed. And we saw that for them, tears endured for a night, as the psalmist says, but joy comes in the morning. That this, this new life, this new hope rushed all over them at one time. That this joy, the sadness was now gone and that joy came to him and it was a brand new day. And this, this resurrection meant everything. It changed everything. It changed and defined who they were. We all have moments in our lives that define who we are. When you're a young person, 16 becomes a defining age, does it not? What happens at 16? Oh, come on, people. Driver's license, right? And then what happens after that? What's the next major event? Oh, somebody's like 18, 21. Depends on what you prioritize, <laughs> right? But graduating from high school, college, 21, there are these significant milestone ages. And then after that, we, we look at other milestones in our life, such as a marriage or a new job. And having children, they greatly define and impress upon our souls who we are. And we have those days as individuals, but we also have those days as a society. In our country, we have certain dates that stick out in our collective conscience. December 7th, 1941, Park of Pearl Harbor. November 22nd, 1963, John F. Kennedy's assassination. And then September 11th, 2001. See, what's unique about each one of those dates is that they define who we are. They determine a great deal about us. We don't live life differently after that. Something has occurred in us that makes us look and understand life differently. And for the disciples, Resurrection Day was the defining day. It was the day that it transformed everything about them. And it transforms even us in our time as well. And this day is not unique to one country. It's not unique to a certain geography is not unique to a certain race, tribe, or tongue. It is unique to all of society. That it applies to every single person without exception. And we see that the resurrection means something to each one of us, whether we realize it or not. And today I want us to look at the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to highlight two small verses one on baptism, and then on what baptism means in light of the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us in our time and in our day. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have a Bible, if not, just listen in, uh, reading from verse 21 through 22. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word. I would invite you to stand with me as we are in uh, 1 Peter, which is in the New Testament, the latter part of your Bible. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence now asking you to show us what it means to follow you, and what the resurrection means for each one of us. That though sorrow has 
has endured for the night, that joy comes in the morning, and we all have a brand new day, a new possibility in front of us. Lord, may we take hold of that. May we understand it. May you tattoo it to our hearts, embed it upon our souls, and may we see the reality of the resurrection and what it means to each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing that I want us to see as we walk through this passage is that the resurrection gives us a whole new perspective on life. That's my first point. You can follow along uh, in your notes in the bulletin, but it gives us an entirely new perspective on life. Now, as I mentioned, I've become like a Netflix geek, okay? I've got like 145 titles in my queue, and they're all like documentaries and modern marvels and just geek shows, because I geek out over it, and it's pretty cool. And one of them is this thing called the city in the sky that um, extreme engineering talks about. And it's talking about this city, city that they're trying to construct in Tokyo. And because there's no land left, they realize that they got to go up. And they have envisioned this city, which is so, it's one building, and it's so big around that it takes up 26 city blocks. And it goes, it looks like each layer of it, and there are 14 layers, each one has the equivalent of a football stadium in it. So it's like one football stadium, two football stadiums, three football, I mean, it's huge. And they envision that this city that they're imagining is going to be so immense that you would never have to leave this building for the entirety of your life. It will have everything, hospitals, doctors, gardening. There's even a grassy area that's massive that's there. That you could uh, have, there'll be banks, there'll be everything that you could possibly need there. And it's huge. I think, I, I mean, I, let me get the, make sure that I have the weight right on how big it really is. That they said it is going to be six million ton building. Six million tons. Now, I don't know much about weight, but that's pretty heavy. Six million tons. And they, but before they build this, they have to understand, is this safe? Is it going to be safe? So they've done these test trials where they take scale models and they mimic an earthquake that Tokyo is guaranteed to have. And as they, they had this earthquake, they showed that this thing, this six million ton building, if it, it, it suffered an earthquake, would move 100 feet. Now think about that. Six million tons moving 100 feet. That's a lot. That's huge. And they said it would move so much that it would collapse. Now, what, what I look at that as is even the toughest person, when they come into contact with the risen Christ, is shaken to their core, and they're going to be moved. That if God can construct an earthquake that can move that ton, that big of a structure, that he can move and transform lives. That he can, he can cause the person who is the farthest away from God to come to him, and it transforms them. See, Following Jesus isn't just something that you do on Sunday, but it's offering up one's life, yielding everything about who we are to him. When we apply the resurrection to our lives, we see that it gives us a whole new perspective on life, and that means two different things. It means this, we can have a second chance. How many of you need a second chance in your life? How many of us all need second chances? How many of us need to have a U-turn? You need to have, you wish you could have a heavenly mulligan. You ever had one of the, a mulligan in golf? I get a do-over, a divine do-over. Because we know what it's like to make mistakes. We don't do it perfectly. And that God, through Christ, gives us a clean slate as well. So we have a second chance. 
See, when it says that baptism now saves you, it's not that the literal act of baptism saves a person. See, when these candidates went in the tank, it's not that that water has some type of magical power that makes them saved. That's not what it's about. It, because that's what Peter says when he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, which means that Jesus' death takes our sins from us. And that baptism symbolizes the cleansing of our sin, that we can now have a clean conscience in the sight of God. We get a second chance, a divine do-over, a messianic mulligan, a heavenly U-turn. That God gives us a second chance because of what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us. That he knew the sin that we would do, because the scripture is very, very clear. For while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. God saw us as sinners. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. And that God knew that, and yet he still sent his son to die on our behalf. And that the payment of sin that had to be made, Jesus made on the cross. And all of our sin, past, present, and future, was thrown upon him at one time. And the scripture is very clear that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. So God, by dying on the cross for our sins, by rising from the dead, he gave us a second chance. He's saying that I'm leveling it. I took on what you owed and now you got a clean slate. You got a clean slate. You were bankrupt in the sight of God and I'm clearing it all. I've given you a second chance, and I'm giving you a clean slate now. That's that second point underneath that, number one. Gives us a whole new perspective on life that we get to start over. That doesn't mean that everyone around us is going to forgive us for what we've done, but we know that we've been forgiven in the sight of God. We've been forgiven in the sight of God. So we can have a second chance, and that we can have a clean slate in his sight, that it changes us. The resurrection changes us, and we can now have a second chance. Now, this clean slate we see in verse 21, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. How many of you and how many of us in this room need to have a clean conscience? How many of us have a sin-stained conscience? You don't need to raise your hand because everybody would be raising their hand right now, except my mother. She's here, and she's perfect. <laughs> right, Mom? Right. She's going to kill me later. That's all right. We can have a clean conscience in the sight of God. Now, see, many of us have our, our consciences like an alarm. Several years ago, we were living in New England. And we had this fireplace. I like fireplaces. I like them. Smell good. Just help you to relax. One day, one evening, it was a cold night, and I lit the fireplace. And I was very accustomed to this smoke was uh, that would come out of the fireplace if the flue wasn't open, and you'd know immediately because the fire alarm would go off. And then you stand like an idiot in front of the fire alarm doing this, you know? And so I'm doing that, and I realize I gotta get the flue open, and then I open the door to let the air out and to clear out, and the air is going out, and, and the alarm normally goes off then. And it's late, it's about 9.30 at night, my kids are in bed, and uh, it's not going off. And I did what any man would do, you rip it out. <laughs> I couldn't get the battery. I couldn't figure it out to unscrew it. So I just ripped it out of the wall. And it didn't stop. Now I'm, I'm, I'm angry at myself. And then I'm also trying to wonder, why is it still going off? I mean, I know I'm hot and all, but 
Why is this still going on? And then I hear that we, they're all in a chain, a circuit, all the fire alarms in my house. So we had to run back, and I, I hear that another alarm going off. And I'm like, there can't be any smoke in here. It's just causing noise. So I, I rip it off again, because now that's the only way to solve it. And so I rip it off, and, and I hear the one in my bedroom going off now, and I'm getting ticked. And I, 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 I'm like, there's no smoke, there's no fire, just stop it. And I walk into my bedroom, and my bedroom was, was uh, attached to the basement, and I see smoke coming out from the basement. See, the fire had a spark that went down into the fire pit and lit it on fire. And see, I tried to quiet the alarm. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't quiet it because it kept coming back, and it was a reminder to me that something else is wrong. See, many of us try to quiet our conscience in a lot of different ways. That alarm goes off, so we turn to drugs, we turn to drinking, we turn to entertainment, we turn to sex, we turn to whatever it is, we turn to our hobbies, we turn to our job, we immerse ourselves and try to forget the conscience that is like an alarm that God is bringing to our souls to bring us to, to an understanding of who He is. And it keeps ringing and we keep trying to tear it off, but God keeps coming back because He loves us. He loves us and doesn't want us to be in danger. He wants us to respond. See, Jesus' death enabled each one of us to be able to have a clean conscience in the sight of God. And the scripture is extremely clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we come to him in repentance and faith, that he will forgive us because of what Jesus did on the cross. So this baptism is a symbol of our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you look at the verses directly preceding that, it equates baptism to Noah getting onto the ark. And it says that the water symbolizes the water of judgment. Just as the waters came upon the earth during Noah's time, so the waters that we step into in the baptismal tank are reminders to us that we have passed from judgment by being buried together with Jesus and risen with him in resurrection and life. So it's an appeal to a good conscience in the sight of God that each one of us can now have, that it gives us forgiveness and it gives us freedom. I think we all want freedom. Like I said, I've been, I'm a Netflix geek. And so I saw this other one on the Statue of Liberty. Statue of Liberty is pretty cool. Anybody been to the Statue of Liberty? This is a, this is a pretty cool place. And it, what's amazing is looking at the, the different parts of the Statue of Liberty and what they symbolize, that she's wearing a diadem on her head that has seven different points that symbolizes the seven continents or the seven seas, people coming from all different lands. She has a book in one hand that has the 4th of July, 1776, inscribed on it to understand that when we have freedom as a country. And then she's also having a torch to light the way for those who are weary to come that they might have freedom. And not only that, but she has, and most people don't know this, she has a broken chain under her foot to show that she's been freed from slavery and to offer hope for those who have been in slavery. And the words emblazoned in a poem underneath, right on the, the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, says this, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. In other words, I'm here as a beacon for those who long for freedom. You know, the scripture says that he who sins is a slave to sin. And that Jesus is the light of the world, offering life and freedom to those who come to him in repentance and faith. That transcends the freedom that the Statue of Liberty symbolizes. 
He says, give me your poor. Give me your sins. Give me your sicknesses. Give me your suffering. Give me your rebellion. I'll give you my righteousness. Give me everything that you have messed up, and I will make it whole again. He offers hope, and he offers freedom, and he offers forgiveness for all that come to him in repentance and faith that receive him as Lord and Savior of their lives. So he gives us this brand new perspective to life, but he also gives the power to live. He gives the power to live. That's that second point in your notes. See, see, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God gives to us when we receive him as Lord and Savior of our life, that he places his spirit within us to help make us like his son, that we might look like him. It's like this. I can tell, for those in this room, I can tell who's related. Because why? You share the same DNA. There are some families that are here, your kids all look alike. Right? And they're all good looking. They look like their parents. Now, how do, how do you look alike? Because you share the same, the same DNA, right? You start looking alike. You can tell the kids who someone's kid is. When God places his Holy Spirit in us, it's like he's placing the DNA of Jesus in us to help us look like Jesus. He's conforming us to the image of his son. That we might look like him. That we might sound like him. That we might die to sin just like he did. And then we might walk in the resurrection life that he has given to us by faith that we might consider ourselves crucified with him, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Isn't that an amazing picture? That he gives us this power to live, and it has two parts. First of all, he gives us the, strength, um, the spirit of God for strength. He gives us the spirit of God for strength. We need that spirit to give us strength to go through day in and day out. Many of us know what it's like to be weary, to be tired. You ever felt that way? That you've been tossed back and forth on the shores of life? That you know it's the consequences of your sin that you've been led into darkness? It's like Finding Nemo. Anyone ever seen Finding Nemo? The little fish, right? You know what I like about Finding Nemo? There's a part where he's trying to show his rebellion from his father, where he goes out into open water to touch the butt. It's a boat, but he says they call it the butt. And so he asserts his independence from his dad and looks back at his dad with anger and slaps the boat. And then what happens at that moment in time? There's a, he gets captured. See, when we go and assert our rebellion from our heavenly father, we're captured in our sin. But what's amazing is what God does then. And just like in Nemo, it's a picture of Christ. Did you realize that? That the, this father crosses the ocean to save his son and lost in rebellion. That God crosses the ocean of time in the person of his son to save us who are lost in our own rebellion. To provide us with redemption. To give us a second chance and a clean slate in the sight of God. And then he gives us, after we receive him, he gives us this power to live the life that he desires. And it's the spirit that he gives us for strength. And it's the courage to follow his call. Because you know what? It takes courage to follow Jesus. Let me tell you right now. Anybody can say they're a Christian. We can all say that, and we all know of someone who has said it, and their life doesn't match it. And many of us are in this room. Many of us have done that ourselves. We've said we follow Jesus, and then our life hasn't measured up. You see, God offers up a, us a second chance to live for him. And then when we have that spirit of God, it gives us the courage to follow his call, to do what he wants us to do. 
Several years ago, I had a relative of mine who was talking, and I was, I was incur, uh, inquiring about his relationship with God, and he said, I can't do what you do because I don't have the courage to do it. And that struck me because I, I did realize that moment in time that it does take courage to follow Jesus. It takes courage to proclaim truth in the midst of a place that just wants to do sin. It takes courage to stand for your convictions when everyone else around you is compromising. It takes courage to stand for truth when everyone just wants to fulfill their own personal tastes and seek the treasures of this world. God is offering up something better for those who desire to follow him. That he gives us his spirit for strength. He gives us the courage to follow his call. He gives us this power to live in this new perspective on life. But he gives us something even more. He gives us a promise to lay a hold of. A promise to lay a hold of. See, in our text today, if you look back at it, see, it says that Jesus is now exalted, that he has ascended to heaven where he reigns. He is the Savior, the, I like to call the uh, inaugurated Savior. He hasn't taken complete office yet on earth, but he's already been inaugurated as the Savior, elect. That he's going to come and step into his rule and his reign. And that now everything is subjected to him. And he's given us promises that he has laid before us within his word time and time again. As 2 Timothy chapter 1 said, that he has given us the spirit of not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. That he's given us this, this power and this presence in our lives to understand that we don't need to be afraid, but we can do what it is that he desires us to do. And then if we take a hold of that promise with all of our heart, we will see that we have a new hope. See, the promise means that we have a brand new hope. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who got, by God's power are being guard, guarded through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, this promise that we uh, have now from Christ is that if we trust in him, that we can have hope that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's not dead. That we can have this amazing hope that transcends time. We all need hope, that ability to see through and what is next. It's like the story of uh, Florence Chadwick. I don't know if you've ever heard this story about Florence Chadwick. She was a, a swimmer who was trying to swim from Catalina Island in California to the coast. And she starts off on this several-mile uh, trek. I think it's a few hundred miles. I can't remember exactly. And she's swimming along, and it's a very foggy time. And she keeps going on and going on, and she can't see. And finally, she says to the boat that's going alongside her, she goes, I give up. I quit. She gets in the boat, and then she's disappointed to learn that she's only a half mile from shore. Half mile. She'd spent all these hours swimming and going through all of this terrible struggle to, to give up with a half mile left. So she decides to take this journey again, and it's another foggy day. And so she, she swims. This time she goes faster than she ever has before, and she gets to the end. And they said, it was foggy just like before. What made you get through? She goes, because I kept my, I had hope that I would get to that picture and that I could get through it. See, Christ gives us hope 
And that when we focus on him, that we have this brand new rest and peace that comes from it. That's what Darlette was talking about with her brother. That he had this peace in the midst of circumstances that gave him hope beyond this world that he could speak so authoritatively about where his wife was going that he could not, that sorrow wouldn't overcome him, that despair wouldn't tear him over or just roll over. But we can have hope as we look to him. Corey Tenboom. Uh, lived in World War II, worked with, uh, hid Jews in her home and ended up being arrested and put in a concentration camp. She said this, if you, would look, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look inside yourself, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. See, that's hope. We have a hope beyond this world that gives us rest, that no matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in your workplace, no matter what happens in your home, no matter what the doctor report says, no matter what relation issue you go through, that God gives you hope. That you have a hope beyond this world. That no matter what setback that you encounter, and we're all going to encounter setbacks. Our economy's in a fragile state. Many of this room were banking on their retirement, and everything ran out. The economy dipped. You lost your 401k. You lost your retirement. People despaired. People have no hope. They have their hope set on wrong things. This is a hope that does not disappoint, that if you place your hope in Christ, it will never disappoint, that God has given us a promise that he will fulfill. How many of you ever made a promise in the room? We've all made promises, right? How many of you have broken your promises? Mom, raise your hand. You promised to take me to the store when I was six, and you didn't. I still hold that against you. I've been in therapy for five years. Just kidding. But we all have promises that we have had made to us that have not been fulfilled, that have been broken. But see, God makes his promises to us, and he can't fail. His promises won't fail. That he will bring every promise that he has laid, laid out for each one of us, and he will bring it to fulfillment. That this promise to lay of hold of means that we have a new hope. It also means we have a new happiness. We have a new joy. Jesus said this. Let's look at this one. Call this one up. John chapter 16, Jesus said, So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In other words, Jesus was telling them that you're, going to, you're not going to see me in a little bit because I'm going to die. But then you're going to see me as a resurrected Savior, and then you're going to have a joy that's going to overflow you, from you that nothing in this world can take away from you. That we have a new happiness and a new joy that is not based on the circumstances of our life. That does not matter what goes on in the public or political arena. That does not affect or is not affected by what goes on in your workplace or goes on in your family. That you have an abiding happiness and joy in your life. And it's not one that is just a big smile that you put on. But it's in a deep abiding understanding of the peace that we have with God that cannot be taken from you. That God has given unto you through the person of his son that is to be received with thankfulness. So we have a promise to lay a hold of, which means that we have this new hope, we have a new happiness, and the resurrection of Christ also means that we have a new home. A new home. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 14, verse 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, what's home for you? Each one of us dream of a home. We have Kathy Brothers here. Kathy, I'm going to pick you up. 
If you don't, see, if you don't know her, look at her, because I'm sure you will be reminded, because you've seen her face go by on a truck. <laughs> She's in real estate. Her picture is on the front of many people's lo- yards. I'm going to embarrass you right now. That's good. I'm also giving you free advertising. Okay? If you need a real estate agent, there she is. And what's amazing about it, though, is she, we're friends on Facebook, and she posts pictures of people who have their, their dream home. Because people always want to own a home, right? It's part of the American dream. We want to own our own home, have our own place. Now, what makes a home a home? Is it the four walls? Is it your flat screen TV? Is it your lounge, your chair, your recliner? Is it your bathroom? Is it your kitchen? Most of us would say it's not any of those things. It's the people that are there. See, the home that we have is a heavenly home, and it's heaven because Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven, that he's our heart's desire, and that he's what we actually long for, that God has created us with this longing that can only be fulfilled by him, that we try to fill it with so many other things. But it's only Jesus that can fulfill the deepest longings of our souls. And the resurrection of Christ shows that. That Jesus, after he died, he was resurrected from the dead. He lived on earth for 40 days where he was seen by 500 people at one time and interacted with the disciples. He ate with them, interacted with them. And then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father where everything, as Peter says, is subjected to him because he is gone to go prepare a place for us to show that this world is not our home. This series that we've been studying in Peter is entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. That by our faith in Christ, we become strangers and aliens to the world around us, that we look different, that we sound different, that we live different, because we have different aspirations. That we claim that we can enter into the forgiveness of sins with God, a new freedom from our past way of life, from all of the hurts and things that, have been, that we have done and that have been done to us. We long for that. See, the resurrection of Christ gives us a brand new day. It gives us a brand new day. And it's available to everyone who asks, without exception, that if you are here today, and that if you believe that Jesus died for you, that you can receive him as Savior, and he will save you, and he will give you that new hope, new happiness, and that new home that is available to all without exception. That you'll have a new perspective in life, you'll have a new power to live by, and that you will also have a new promise to lay a hold of that God will fulfill in his time. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that a wonderful plan? Isn't that a wonderful purpose that God has given to us, that he's taken the penalty of our sins upon himself, made the payment that God required that we might have new life in him? I think we all need that new life. We all need forgiveness. We all need freedom. And he offers to it to you and all of us today. It's your opportunity to take a hold of it. As we get ready to close our time together today, I'm going to invite our our baptismal, not candidates anymore, they're baptized. So have our folks that came and uh, baptized. We just want to honor them and uh, give them, want to pray for them one more time and give you opportunity at the end of the service to go up and introduce yourself to them, to welcome them. We have some flowers for them, as well as some uh, certificates done very, very well um, to honor them. So I'm going to invite them to come forward right now. Yeah, you can applaud. These have repented of their sins. They've received Jesus and Lord and Savior of their life. Franklin, they're flowers. It's okay. Dudes can get flowers. We have these beautiful calligraphy certificates to remind them of their 
baptism this day that is a day to be remembered, a day that will influence you for the rest of your life. So we want to pray with them, and then we're going to close our service. Our Father and our God, I lift up to you everyone here today, but I especially lift up to you Franklin, Darlette, Eliana, and Mackenzie. Lord, I pray your blessing upon them. I pray that they might live truly uh, that the, the resurrection life of Jesus, that they might consider themselves dead to sin and alive to the Savior, alive to righteousness, to do that, what it is that you desire them to do. And Lord, for each of us in this room, I pray that we all might walk worthy of the kingdom of God. For those that are holding on to their sin, that are still living lives of rebellion to you, I pray that you show them the depth of your love, that you died on the cross for their sins, that they might die to sin and live to you. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we fall. Help us to see and live the truth that we espouse. And may your name receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As uh, we, we... ask you if you want to stay around and talk and just just fellowship, uh, please do so to let you know that we have classes and things like that. Please check us out on the web to see about uh, different events. We have the newcomers class that I would encourage you to sign up with or sign, uh, sign up for or even one of our small groups and uh, just to check out different things and understand what this new life in Christ means. Let's, let's stand and close with our benediction. Our Father and God who brought our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, back from the dead. We are grateful for the life that you have bestowed upon us, that you've given us a second chance with you. May we live worthy of the new life that you have given us by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.